0: Presented by RomulusIT.com, offering remote support for common computer problems. Landry.audio, listen, like, and subscribe. Today we are speaking with Grapple Arts founder and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu expert, Stefan Kesting, uh, who can be found pretty much on every, any avenue of the web if you're looking for assistance uh, building your BJJ game. He joins us uh, from his home in British Columbia, Canada. So how are we today, Stefan?
1: I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on. It uh, it's uh, nice to be. It's amazing. Like I mean, the <laughs> I was just telling my my kids, you know, snails, and like they can log onto the internet and search, "What do snails eat?" And they can have the answer five seconds. And have this conversation with you, you know, literally on the other side of the planet, and we can talk about a sport that was, you know, originally came from Japan got mutated by some Scottish immigrants in Brazil and is now being practiced all over the world. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's a, uh, we are the United Nations or the United Colors of Benetton here on this <laughs> podcast. So, uh, thrilled to be
0: uh, here. Uh, it's very cool. As, um, as we were saying before we, we turn on the mic and everything um, while looking for, you know, building your game, filling the holes for, for, well, for people that don't know who might be stumbling across this, um, Stefan's an expert, and I, I don't use that term lightly, uh, but knows Brazilian Jiu Jitsu really well. And, and we'll we'll go into that, and I guess, talk a little bit about the origins, which is a, a form of, of ground fighting. And Stefan's been doing this for a number of years, what we'd call an, an OG in a lot of respects. And he now posts uh, a lot of videos outside of his full-time job to help people develop their game which is a sport in and of itself and where a lot of people like myself were introduced to it came out of the origins of um, ultimate fighting or nhb or cage fighting which was sort of a a supplementary component of how you do that sport so that's probably a good place to start off the conversation in terms of um, just offering your own explanation in your own words when people come up and and ask you and how you got into the game because i think we're probably starting to talk about the early 90s around that point wouldn't we
1: we're actually talking a little bit earlier because i remember so in the late 80s i was training a lot with uh, danny nasanto and right. uh, danny nasanto's instructor it? so danny nasanto exactly was one of the few people authorized by bruce lee to teach and also been responsible for introducing a ton of martial arts in north america he helped popularize thai boxing brought shoot wrestling into north america he's introduced things like indonesian salat the filipino martial arts Uh, just a a renaissance man of martial arts and he started talking about I want to say in the late 80s he started talking about how there was this thing called shoot wrestling and shoot boxing and yeah punching and kicking was important but when you looked at it statistically most of the matches ended by submission on the ground and at the same time kind of the whole Gracie in action one Gracie in action two thing started seeping into public consciousness or at least into the consciousness of the people who were paying attention. And I remember getting bootleg tapes of Gracie in action. One was a starving college student and I managed to get my hands on it. I must've watched that thing 50 times. And from the first Gracie in action, my training partners and I figured out that if you're a fight, two things, a fight's probably going to go to the ground. And if it goes to the ground, you want to be sitting on top of a guy in a schoolyard bully position, which later we found out was called the Mount. Yeah, And then, uh, we we started training. We would go and I was training a lot of kajukembo, which is a hard kempo system. And uh, fortunately, the instructor there was very open-minded. He had no problem with us after class and uh, doing all the, the Kembo stuff of staying behind and essentially trying to reverse engineer jujitsu. Right? We kind of knew that I, I'd done some judo, so I knew what a judogi, a uh, straight armbar, was. Uh, I've done some Japanese jujitsu. So we kind of knew that if you twisted the wrist in certain ways, you could get a submission. I had long hair. like I had a big curly hair at that point, And we were just like grabbing hair, gouging eyes, twisting fingers. You know, like I said, it was, it was pretty uh, uh, low rent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were really discovering it from first principles. And of course we would have proceeded or developed a lot faster, but you know what? That certain intensity, was still good, and any time rolling around on the ground with people is 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 good. It will have results. At the very least, it'll desensitize you to that that panic that comes from close proximity, that claustrophobia, and that's really what a lot of people struggle with. And and yeah, so that was the the introduction. And then as the UFC came along, uh, it it further solidified the, uh, uh, the the desire to get to increase the- amount of ground training I was doing. Uh, at that point, there were no instructors around. So I, I went back to judo. I had done a lot of judo in my youth and I found a judo club that did a whole lot of newaza, which means groundwork. And really the origins of Brazilian jiu-jitsu are in judo.
0: I only and have so to ask do... because you mentioned the <laughs> 80s with long hair. Were you a hair metal or heavy metal guy back then?
1: <laughs> I looked like a hippie. I was the straightest hippie you'd ever seen. Okay. Uh, beard, long curly hair, uh, sometimes in a ponytail. I'd run around wearing like an army jacket and uh, I was... I'd something out of drunk. an Oliver Stone still, drunk like, born on but, the 4th of July. Yeah
0: or <laughs> but I
1: really, I really did look like I was um, you know a dead head right. or uh, uh, I don't know Jesus come out of the wilderness or something.
0: Uh, For for people that don't, were you based in Van at this point in time? I mean, some of the guys that you ended up training with, you're you're all over the place across the North American continent. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I would. That was in Montreal, Uh, the French speaking Canada, close towards the East Coast. It's a beautiful city. I uh, I love going back there, and uh, I was there for seven or eight years. So I I trained a lot with Philip Gelina and the Filipino martial arts and Kajukenbo and uh, and various others. Some Thai boxing, and it was a very formative period and honestly the he was very knowledgeable but he also gave you enough freedom to explore and for example i also became interested in capoeira the brazilian sort of dance fighting at the time and uh, un, you know nine out of ten martial arts instructors can say what are you interested in that for you know you should just focus on your shotokan or you should just focus on your taekwondo or you should just focus on your yes. you know, bagua kung fu he was like yeah sure uh, I know, I know a guy who knows a guy who does a lot of capoeira. You should give him a call. Here's his number. Uh, and if you want to bring an instructor up, we can totally have a seminar. And I went and found an instructor and we, we started our first capoeira group that was associated. Like, that's pretty rare to have a teacher who's that open-minded and that willing to, you know, to go back to Bruce Lee, absorb what is useful and study what is interesting and then reject what is useless. Mm. So it was... Um, it really set the stage. I came before that, I came out of a very strict Kung Fu background where you would barely ask any questions. You would certainly never say, hey, uh, Sifu, do you mind if we just you know, totally deviate from what you're teaching and explore this? That's just not done in the traditional martial arts setting. So I was, I was, very, for, and it was a, very fortunate and it was a breath of fresh air coming out of that stifled traditional atmosphere.
0: How, how did you manage to do that? Um, for a lot of us, it seems hard enough to train in one art and become good at that. So it sounds like you're training like six different styles all at once.
1: Well, you, you, you become a, a bit of a jack of all trades, but you do try to master one. At that, time, at that point, my focus was on Kaju Campbell. That's what I trained three or four times a week. But then, you know, I'd come, you're, you're 20 years old. You can train multiple times a day and not get worn down. I was in university. I was working pretty hard for a university student, but really, compared to real life, it's still a pretty privileged lifestyle. So, is you that, know, I would.
0: I'm sorry. Is that like the
1: occasional seminar?
0: Kempo karate, like the the hard style, pretty much um, punching, punching to the chest and kicking. Exactly. Yeah. Okay.
1: Exactly. So we would start out a class with warm ups. And then basically we'd start. We'd, then we take a big heavy medicine ball, which is basically a sandbag wrapped in packing tape. And one guy would lie down. you I would slam it into his gut as hard as he could, 20 yeah. times. And you'd change. And then you'd, you know, one guy get in a horse stance. The other guy would side kick him. I mean, <laughs> make him step back, and then side kick him again. And it it was mostly targeted just to the abdomen, basically the belly button. And thus, you know, you'd think that there wouldn't be much carryover there, but but there is just getting used to pain and discomfort and learning the right way to take a shot really helped. You know, it, it didn't make, um, you know, it it didn't make me knockout proof, but it it began to break the correlation between, Oh my God, I got hit. It's the end of the world. Oh yeah, I got hit. You know, that that sucks. Mm. So there was a lot of physical conditioning and, uh, emphasis on, on impact training. Was it good for you in the long run? I don't know.
0: It was good for me in the short run. Um, the, the Gracie in, in action videos, uh, a few people have mentioned this, but again, it sort of predates my time because I I kind of recognize 93 is when it hit North America and everything and Shudo predating that in Japan. What do you remember about that period? Were they just promoting these through things like Black Belt Magazine? And what was the take up? Did people know that they exist or was it still pretty underground even back back then in, in the martial arts circle?
1: It was certainly pre UFC, but... Even more importantly, it was pre-YouTube. So you had in the in the magazines you'd have the Ninja Master, claiming to be ultra deadly Ninja Master, and you'd have the Iron Palm guy, saying that he couldn't pick up babies with his iron with his left hand because that was his Iron Palm hand, and if he picked up a baby, the chi from his killing hand would go into the baby and kill it. I remember that article. Uh, You'd have the, the Kyokushin guys talking about how they were the best. And you had these Jiu-Jitsu guys talking about how they were the best. And so there was really, it was hard to judge. I mean, we were doing sparring at that point. So it was the whole, you know, by sparring, I mean pressure testing. And so I was beginning to figure out that this fancy hopping around, pretending that you're a praying mantis or pretending that you're a monkey from the Kung Fu days didn't translate that well to getting punched in the face, mm. right? It, it uh, As soon as somebody gets punched in the face, they go from their fancy stance to something that kind of looks like a kickboxing stance. Mm. Uh, the, the universal evolution to swords, sort of something that's more or less kickboxing. But then there was always the, you know, the Iron Palm guys going, well, this is way too deadly to spar. Yeah, you know, I, I can't show this to you. I we can't spar it. I would kill you. Okay, that, that's, that's interesting. And at the same time, there were also the... They, they were flogging the Gracie in action video, you know, VHS tapes, you know, like proof of the incredible, you know, deadly efficacy of the Gracie jiu-jitsu. They were calling it Gracie Gracie jitsu not Brazilian jiu-jitsu at that point. And so it seemed interesting. And then a, a guy came to class who, who bought one of the tapes and we watched it. And that really, you know, seeing is believing to a certain extent. Mm. And in the era before YouTube, you know, we would, we would, trade VHS tapes. I had a bunch of, you know, VHS tapes of you know, capoeira. I would go and I'd find the National Geographic special on capoeira and, and have that on one tape. Uh, you know, it, the, the amount of information and the speed with which information disseminates now is just astounding. I mean, if, if you and I are grappling and and at a tournament and you figure out how to do a flying barambolo mm-hmm to north-south choke. The break that start the Monday in the gym. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the 24 hours will not go by before somebody else on the other side of the planet will be trying that. And if they hit it, then it's it's, undeniable is a bit of a strong word, but it's a pretty strong indicator that you're onto something. Mm.
0: Well, we'll have lots of time to talk about how how the martial art is, has adapted it's just um when i watch all of your videos you 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 always harken back to the old days and that's why i'm uh, i'm really interested in exploring that and just understanding your journey of how you've come through it because um, a lot of us who who practice bjj we we are the true believers in a way that people from other martial arts aren't so i i just I want to take us to that point and then, and then talk about, you know, how you've sort of built a career and, and building a name there. So, um, you watch these videos and, and at what point in time is it, um, cause you end up moving over to Marco Sources gym to, to train, I think, which is where you start. So uh, can you take me through the steps of, of, of how this comes to fruition? Sure.
1: I had done enough. Okay. So 93 hit. And uh, that was UFC 1. I was very, very interested in what was going on. And then a few UFCs later, uh, Hoist Gracie, Triangle, and I, I'd, I'd been upping my ground game in the training that I was doing. Like, it's clear that ground fighting is important. And then Hoist Gracie fought Dan Severn. So this big, giant, 260-pound wrestler who had just suplexed the crap out of everybody and Hoist Gracie Triangle choked him. And in that moment, I was like, okay, I don't care how practical it is to train this or not train this. I have to find somebody who teaches this. Mm -hmm. And so my first teacher was actually a blue belt, Shemek Dropczynski. He was a Polish guy and he was basically the only blue belt. I think it was one of like two or three guys in the entire province who taught jujitsu. And the blue belts were so scarce in the day that he would on a weekly basis take uh, an hour and a half ferry and a, basically an hour drive. So he'd take two and a half hours to come to Vancouver to teach for a couple of days, sleep in the gym, and then turn around and go back to Victoria, which is where he lived. That's how rare blue belts were. And and a whole bunch of us flocked there because he was, uh, he was the best teacher that was available to us. And now to be fair, he was a very good blue belt. He was a very analytical. He was a very skilled kickboxer as well. Uh, had some kind of North American title in one organization. So not not a a low quality blue belt, a very high quality blue belt, but still uh, that was the most information that we had at the time. Also, we were doing something that we called uh, the Uncle Willie's Grappling Association. It was a super low budget restaurant called Uncle Willie's. Basically it was an all you can eat buffet. All of us were starving students and once a week about 10 of us from different clubs. There were a whole bunch of hapikido guys, there were some judo guys, there were some kajukambo guys. It was just a hodgepodge of people would meet at different martial arts clubs in the city, train together and then go out for all you can eat Uncle Willie's. And really it was like one of the guys would be like, I drove for three hours to Seattle and paid $200 for a private with a black belt there. And he showed me this one technique and he'd come and maybe he would show you, maybe he wouldn't, or they'd play coy, like, oh, I don't know if I want to show this to you because they had just paid $200 to learn, I don't know, uh, an armbar entry or something. Yeah. And then there was a Panther production videotapes that were super low quality, but still, that was the only information that was out there. And one guy would get them and then maybe like dole them out one move at a time. <laughs> it, it was, it was we were really grasping, we were really trying to figure this stuff out on our own and uh, progressed from there to training with Pshamek, the blue belt. And then eventually also started training, I kept on training with him for years, but also training with Marcus Suarez, who was a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt from the Carlson Gracie lineage, who came up from Rio to British Columbia. So it it was compared to now, right? Now you you basically go to any city and, in Oh, it's North like a McDonald's. America. There's one with yeah. you know, six, oh, six exactly.
0: blocks of the next one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you took an arrow, a bow and arrow you, and knew which direction to fire, you could probably hit five mm. of them. So I mean, it was a very, very different situation. And it, people were much more greedy or much more protective of their knowledge, right? You'd mm-hmm. go to a, a class, you'd get armbarred a whole bunch of times. You'd, you'd ask the teacher, well, how do I not get armbarred? And his answer would be like, grow shorter arms. <laughs> <laughs> because really, what he was trying to do was to sign you up for a private class in which he would teach you for a hundred dollars. Yeah, of course, so. defense. Right? It was it was a very different world. I'll say the other big difference about back in the day. It was much more connected to the idea of fighting and yes. MMA. Yeah, very much. And so. basically, you would thought you would have to like throw down to represent the art at the drop of a hat. So I, I think that's become somewhat decoupled. People talk about old school and new school and what's the origin of new school and what are I'll say that was that one big divider, right? There there was a generation of guys who came up really thinking about how to use this in MMA. If you were training in Jiu Jitsu, probably there was a guy in your club who was going to fight MMA. Probably he did no boxing at all. And your training for, you know, training for MMA would be like rolling in (laughs) t-shirts. Uh,
0: that, but, that era was still prevalent when I got into it in late 2003, yeah. 2004, at least in, in Calgary where I was, this, this idea that you know we don't tap, even if the arm breaks, we, you know, we don't tap in a fight and you're a representative of your gym. You don't need to it's know how to stand up. You have to just du- double leg and, and get it to the ground. I, I remember that era pretty well when it was still NHB. I mean, as a basic strategy for somebody who's in a street
1: fight and we're engaging with somebody's a good idea. The basic idea of duck, close the distance, clinch or double leg takedown, pass their guard, get to the mount, take the back, choke them out. It's still a pretty damn good strategy. And it's it's amazing how under pressure, like the the various psychological triggers for the person on the receiving end of that, it it still works, right? Like Mm. if we're fighting and we're really upset, you're probably going to try and take my head off. Probably with your right hand. I mean, if you watch enough you know, street ride videos, that's probably 60% of the attacks, right? It's not the only thing. Sometimes you see a spinning back kick, sometimes you see a headbutt, sometimes you see a you know, jump spinning reverse spiking elbow or whatever. But most of the time, it's the big right hand. So the basic idea of covering your face, level changing, stepping in and either clinching or shooting a double. Yeah, I mean, it oh, might not I... work in MMA as well as it used to, because guys are now training specifically for that. Mm. And the basic street strategy might not work if a guy's you know, extensively cross-trained in MMA. But against the average untrained fighter, man, jiu-jitsu still works really, really well. And it works much faster than, you know, you can, you can put it into action in real life. Much faster than many other pure martial arts.
0: I, I don't think people take into account, and, and I think even practitioners, even people that watch MMA who don't train enough, though I don't think they watch enough street fights to see really how violent they are. Most of the fights that I end up seeing, first of all, there's you know there's a swarm, then it's windmilling of one twos while people have. Um, you know, they, they've planted their feet and they're going hell bent for leather Then someone ends up on the ground. And then we're into, you know, one championship pride where it's just kicking the guy's head on the ground. I really don't think people realize that, um, and that's why I'm still a fan of old school jujitsu, which is just close the distance, get on top and neutralize. And I think you were kind of alluding to this. It's, um, and again, it's probably because I grew up in a different generation of doing it, not as old as you, but around that area. It's, it's, um, it's kind of vexing to watch this new wave of spats jiu-jitsu where they tap hands and go into seated guard immediately. It's um it it, it seemed, it's still even after watching this for many years it just seems so counterintuitive to the way that I was introduced to the sport. I'm not
1: denying what you're saying, but I'll say I'll say two things. Um, it's pretty easy if you say you're doing the most sportive style of jiu-jitsu to man, Your entire game is based off the barambolo and uh, what's the, the guard, donkey, donkey guard, all this sure. stuff. Sure. The, the donkey guard and the barambolo. <laughs> <laughs> Not, and that's all you train in the gym. Okay, your techniques aren't going to be dialed in for a street confrontation, but what will be dialed in is the ability to deal with pressure and the ability to deal with somebody who really does want to smash you because they hate that stupid donkey guard. Mm. They don't want to And and they're real if they can they really will choke you out, and they're really not going to let you do your flying donkey guard moves on them if they at all can. So that idea of applying techniques against resistance and dealing with somebody who really doesn't want to have you do something to them, that's still got a fair amount of carryover. I mean, if I had to choose who's going to win, and that is, I don't know. Jeff no, this is a ridiculous example because he's so bloody good, but Jeff Glover, Lovely. founder of the donkey guard. So let's say he's been doing jujitsu for 20 years versus some guy who's only been practicing the most deadly killing moves. He's only been practicing eye gouges, fighting oh, the throat of course. and fighting the groin. <laughs> I'm going to choose Jeff Glover.
0: Of course. Yes.
1: So I, I think training against resistance is the most important thing. It's the training method is more important than training techniques. Now, of course, the tech, you know, if Jeff Glover just trained, you know, stuff that is more dialed in for the street, he'd be even more effective. But mm-hmm. I don't think Jeff Glover's gonna have any problems on the street. And then secondly, say you're doing a sportive style, right? You're you're you like your Delahiva guard and you like your ball and chain sweep where you're taking the sleeve and feeding it through the guy's leg and then grabbing the lapel and wrapping the lapel around the guy's head, or you know, not a super self-defense-oriented system. It's pretty easy to calibrate yourself a couple times a year you or your really your teacher should make you put on bag gloves go on the bottom the guy on top put in a mouth guard and the guy on top tries to hit you and very very quickly your body will calibrate to okay that didn't work i'm not saying punch the guy's teeth down his throat but you know pop sure. it 20 to 30 percent and just recalibrate your stuff for what works in the street and then you can go back to Barambolo because you're doing the hard work already you've mm. done the hard work which is bearing the pressure getting your timing right getting the conditioning to keep on going and going and going learning to grip fight I think it was uh, on my podcast I did, once did an interview with Ryan Hall yeah. and we, at that point people thought the end of Jiu Jitsu had arrived because 50-50 guard was like people hadn't figured out the counters to it yet. So 50-50 guard was just seen as purely a stalling position. Hmm. Right, you, you would get a point or you get an advantage and you put the guy in 50-50 and hold him there for the end, for the whole entire match. You probably remember that kind of moral panic, but what's Jiu Jitsu coming to, <laughs> right? We're, we're done, <laughs> it, we've reached the end of the evolution. 50-50 guard is, is the death of Jiu Jitsu. And Ryan Hall pointed out quite correctly that from a self-defense perspective, if somebody's trying to punch you in the head. If you put them in 50 50 guard, they're not going to be able to punch you in the head no more. Mm. You've, you've taken this sportive stalling position and turned it into a position that could allow you. I mean, if the guy's a knife or a gun, it's a different situation, of course. And I think that that's a training for that is a whole nother level. But this very, very sportive position is a very powerful, uh, you know. Sometimes to win in a street fight, you just need to stall. It's right? yeah, like absolutely. the cops are coming, your wife's coming with a shovel, or maybe the other guy's buddies are coming with a shovel, but <coughs> uh, you know, you don't have to kill the other guy to win. You just have to not die.
0: Well, I even tell now, uh, I tell it to my guys in, in training, a lot of the newer guys, "Oh, you know, what do I do in half guard on the bottom?" and mount. And I go, well, it's BJJ. There's no striking. Gather yourself for a second, try to get on your side and stall. If we, you know, if we've got six rounds of five minutes and you're already tired by round two, I'm like, you got to learn to, to ease up and, and know when to, when to hit the gas and when to hit the brake when you're rolling. For sure. Mm-hmm. For
1: sure. And that, uh, if you're watching our street fight videos, you'll see that basically if it's not over <laughs> in uh, 20 you seconds, got, yeah. You've got two guys who look like they're drunk. If, they're not, if they weren't drunk already, they're drunk with fatigue now. It's just lactic oh. acid is poisoning every every organ system in their body because it's extremely exhausting, right? It, it's much more, uh, you're Canadian originally, I'm a canadian it's much more like hockey fighting right like grab the jersey awesome. and it's not like let us engage in fisticuffs and oh i'm slipping your job and i'm setting you up for this with no it's like you grab the guy and you hit the guy as many times as you possibly can and probably i don't know you're throwing like 20 punches in 10 seconds and that's exhausting
0: yeah and then someone comes and breaks it it's it's very much like that um so what's uh if we go back to that time you know um mm-hmm. Sores comes in. I kind of uh, did. Did you notice a wave of because the, sort of the first wave of instructors into North America were the Brazilians. So did you notice sort of a point where they all just sort of showed up, started opening up their gyms, as you said, they sort of go for for the private to build the club and and I guess out of that, how long did a wave of of you know domestic black belts take? Yeah,
1: yeah it was definitely a period where if you were Brazilian and you had a jiu-jitsu black belt and and, or any kind of world title, which really, or any kind of Brazilian championship, you're pretty much guaranteed an income Mm. because you could go. And even if you weren't the best teacher, even if your pedagogy wasn't that good, even if uh, you weren't even that nice a human being, you could still (laughs) uh, get a following just because you were a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Um I'm trying to think of when the uh, I mean realistically the the first crop of North American domestic people opening schools was probably 5 years later because at that point it was still possible to open a schools of even a blue belt mm. certainly as a purple belt for sure a brown belt
0: you are 98 and, or a period around yeah then? in
1: around then mm. um and uh I, mean, I got my black belt new year's eve uh, 1999 okay that is that right no, that's not right. Two thousand and six. Sorry, New okay. Year's Eve, two thousand and six. Um, that's right. I remember the New Year's Eve part because my buddy got my and one of my main sparring partners had gotten promoted a couple of days before, and I was like, I knew I was going to get it. I was like very happy to get it on New Year's Eve. That way, he couldn't say he'd got it a full year ahead of me. Yeah, right. <laughs> say He'd gotten a couple of days. Ahead. I could already see where the where the angle was coming from and where the jives were going to. So I was extremely relieved.
0: Um, were there guys, uh, so even like when I started in, in Calgary, I trained under a guy named um, Alex Hockey, who might, people might know him as Alex Roke, who runs BJJ fight okay. team there. And he was, a, he was a, a blue belt under, I think his original instructor was by the name, nickname of Esfija. Um But either way, you know everyone knows sort of um, uh, Gracies and Machados who are really still Gracies or I guess the cousins of them. Uh, did Lutra Leve, come in as well or was it pretty much just you were either Machado or Gracie or, or what do you sort of remember of them you know uh, I guess introducing themselves to North America yeah.
1: there wasn't as strong a Machado presence in Vancouver initially I think well, I'm trying to think when there was a guy called John who went over to them eventually um, yeah I mean I, I remember I, I'm of that era when you could neck like originally you could neck crank in competition I remember being offered free month of tuition
0: talking more of, and,
1: and can openers, or the stocks from mm-hmm. catch wrestling, or uh, I remember Marcus offering a free month of tuition to anyone who could pull off uh, a neck crank. The, the the basically from knee mount, you pull the guy up, you weave your arm under his forearm pit, and right. then you sit out to the stocks. Okay, and I remember <laughs> trying my best to pull this off in competition, and I, I I won with something else, but I I didn't I didn't get that free month. Uh, There was no such thing as reaping of the legs, there were no real requirements about your gi. It could be any size, really. Uh, It really was the Wild West. I'm trying to think of other things that were legal then. So reaping was legal. Uh, There were no rules around, uh, you know, the types of takedowns you could use. You know, head inside,
0: head outside, didn't matter. You mentioned that because back when I had the old Atoma gis, I'd be able to pull off the Ezekiels with the gi a lot easier. Yes. And now everything that, you know, the, the, the sleeves around them, are they're, they're like two inches thinner where you can barely get your fingers in and they're, you know, inch and a half down from the wrist, which makes it virtually impossible. And that, you know, clearly is where that onset of that the sort of slicing version of that seems to have come from.
1: Yeah. I had a friend who was an Ezekiel specialist who, Ordered extra large sleeves, just <laughs> just for that. And I went and took my gi and got it modified because I didn't want people grabbing my gi. And I actually got a version of the gi where, basically, there was it was like a sweater. There was no room at the wrist at all. Yeah, right. Like it. Like I said, it was a Wild West. Um, the rules would change. Uh, it's it's not it's not jujitsu. But I remember going to an MMA competition. This was right around UFC five or six. Do you remember the UFCs when every different UFC would have different rules. Like in this well, one, you would be moving
0: it from state to state, trying yeah. to keep it legal and also trying to get people to appear. I remember that. So one would be like, you can wear wrestling boots next when you can't or something along those lines.
1: And there was one, I want to say UFC five or six where uh, you weren't allowed to punch, but, and you'd be fined $25 if you punched. So basically open it was hand. like, this? yeah, because they open hand hits, right. but really for a $25 fine, like most of the guys, said, screw it, I'm just going to take the, eat the $25 fine and knock the guy out with my fist. So I went to an MMA event in town at that, in that era. And, uh, you know, there was a friend of a friend was fighting and uh, I, I hadn't ever seen it live. It was the first live MMA event I ever went to. But I was there early and I was there for the entire rules meeting. And the rules meeting went like this, you know, quote, okay, guys, basically total UFC rules, end quote. So you had, you had guys going in there thinking they weren't allowed to punch. You had guys basically trying to do pancreation, like palm heel strikes. Yeah. You had other guys punching. You had other guys elbowing. You had other guys headbutting. Uh, you had one guy who knocked his opponent down right at the edge of the ring, stood on the guy's neck with one foot, grabbed the bottom rope, basically deadlifted himself, and then started stomping on the guy's temple with his other foot.
0: So WWF, literally.
1: Yeah, but trying to kill the okay. guy. Right. So uh, it so just goes like there was no unified rule system. There was okay. no agreement. And, and you know, the, the rules in the UFC were changing so rapidly that like, okay, guys, basically total UFC rules doesn't mean anything at all. Like, uh,
0: so back in that, that period then, because you're talking about this era and, and you're in Vancouver, did you ever run into or train with guys like Dave Benito then?
1: I never met Dave Benito, but I trained a lot with one of his training partners. Uh, a connection through uh, SFU Wrestling. But okay. no, I, I never never ran into Dave Beneteau. There were a bunch of... Um, There's a pretty good fight scene out of Vancouver. It's weird. I think there was just enough of a wrestling scene initially and then mm-hmm. enough of a old-school boxing scene.
0: I think there was here. another old UFC guy named Jason something, I think, who was originally an alternate, who was from Vancouver, who came in to... The infamous Jason Farrin. Is that who it was? okay? Uh, yeah, he was,
1: he was a guy who had that um, match in the early UFCs where he fought Guy Metzger. They both had long hair, and they both That's agreed pulling, yeah. to, not, uh. to not pull each other's hair. Yeah, so yeah, there were definitely a bunch of guys. There was a, there was a strong fight scene here, probably because uh, there was a strong jiu-jitsu scene here, and probably because there was a strong wrestling scene. I mean, it's, you know, you're in Calgary, you're, you know, like Edmonton probably didn't have a strong MMA scene there because everyone was into hockey. Mm. So, not, not as crazy, not as uh, hockey crazy town here as you yeah. guys were in Alberta.
0: They had a good year this year, though. I was watching the, the connects all the way through the playoffs. So, I got my uh, little replica mask. But.
1: Sorry, I don't follow basketball.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. So, how do you um? The guy that's that was very interesting to me is is Eric Paulson. So, as someone who came up from that era, he was um, you know, he's sort of a a demi in the MMA community around that time, and and was uh, working with a lot of a lot of fighters. Um, how did you cross paths with him, and and what are your experiences with him?
1: Well, Eric was the kind of one generation prior to me, right? Like he was in the uh, he trained in the original Gracie Garage. Mm. He Competed uh, back in the day when there were schools going never open your closed guard ever. Yes. Yeah. Jiu-Jitsu is the closed guard. Why would you ever open it? And then you know some heretic would come along and go no but you you actually can open it. Right. That was the first kind of clash of if you want to say traditional Gracie versus Machado. I think that might have been the two players at the time. Obviously both sides have evolved and there's very good closed guard players on the Machado side now and. It's, and there's so many more players that that initial rivalry or opposing worldviews, uh, you know, is isn't relevant anymore. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so he was the generation before he also trained in shoot wrestling with Yuri Nakamura, which was, so the, the connection there was fostered through Daniel Asanto. He was one of Daniel Asanto right. students okay. who started doing shoot wrestling and uh, had a background in Taekwondo and, uh, you know, got into jujitsu early and uh it was through the inosanto connection that i hooked up with him so i've I've known him a long time and you know there's it's really cool to run some people are just encyclopedic right they're like vacuum cleaners mm. they vacuum it all in and then they somehow can just sort it out in, into you know 18 different variations of an armbar but here are the two that work the best right it, it's uh It's really cool to see people of that kind of encyclopedic knowledge and are happy to show it to you. And then even more rare is kind of prioritizing it for you going, yeah, you can do this. 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 (laughs) But when push comes to shove, most people do this or that. Mm. Like that's really important knowledge. So you're familiar with all of it, but then you also know what the high percentage stuff is. Cause there's, I mean, (laughs) you take a look at some of the older grappling books, uh, there's a lot of low percentage stuff you can do that'll work once or twice, right? The, the idea of high percentage, we, we know the arm bar is high percentage. If you and I are grappling and I see that you're going for an arm bar on me, there's a pretty damn, and I, I, I recognize it. There's a pretty damn good chance. You're still going to finish that arm bar. Mm-hmm. If I'm going for a heel hook on you. It's, it's not a mystery move. You've seen it before, but depending on where our relative levels of skill are and our depth of understanding that position, there's a a pretty good chance I'm going to finish that heel hook. Now, if we're going for like, I don't know, an obscure Aikido wrist lock uh, that I'm trying to catch as we're both, you know, starting on the knees, bump and shake, or, you know, slap and bump. And then I go for a wrist lock. If I catch it once on you, we could spar for another 10 years. And you're never, never, ever, (laughs) ever going to let me catch that again. So which one is high percentage? Well, Clearly the arm bar. I mean, not to say the wrist lock isn't fun, because if I did catch that, I would lord it over you till the day we died. But <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it shouldn't be your bread and butter. It should be like one of those things that you pull out of the hat occasionally as a party trick. And, and people are, if, if you see it at the black belt level in elite competition, right? At, at the mm. nationals or the, the Pan Ams or the world championships, you know, one of two things, either that guy is a total genetic freak and can do things that nobody else can, or he's doing a reliable technique that he's hit thousands of times in sparring and now hitting it against somebody else who's also very good. And that's a pretty good measure of what a high percentage technique is.
0: One of the, um, as I mentioned to you, so, so my instructor who I train under is Anthony Parosh. And one time when we had him come by the gym uh, to do some seminar work, now that I don't live in in the city, we were doing some Nogi work and he he came up with a statistic and I don't know where he pulled it from, but he was saying that ultimately in the game, it's like oftentimes the same mistakes end up being made. Even if you're a beginner to an expert and the, the way that he pointed this out, he said, pulled out a statistic somewhere and said in ADCC matches, um, when someone moves to turtle or goes to their back, maybe out of side control, out of a desperation when, when they can't bridge out, he goes, that move still ends up being something like, you know, 40 to 60% of the finishing submissions that you mm-hmm. see where they take the back and end up getting the rear naked choke. And it was, it was just a fascinating statistic that he presented that mm-hmm. they, it still ends the same way oftentimes from when you're, you know, blue, purple, or brown that once you hit sort of a plateau or level of exhaustion, you end up making the same sort of lazy escapes that that cause your demise in a rule. I found it fascinating.
1: Yeah, and, and that kind of I mean, sometimes that stuff is driven by the rule set, right? Yeah, of but course. If let's just say that if judo had, um, I love judo, and I think judo groundwork is great. I think it's got one a couple gigantic flaws. Number one, they don't know enough different kinds of submissions. Number two, going to turtle or going belly down is considered an escape. Whereas I think if, I, if we're in a judo context and I put my hooks in, that should be considered a pin. Mm. That should be considered a pin, the same way that Kezu is considered a pin, the same way that side control or what they call the Oko Shiogatame or the mount or Tate Shiogatame is considered a pin. And if I pin you in judo for 20 seconds, I win. So I think there the rule system drives a behavior. that's not very combative, right? In judo, a, a very common escape is to roll to your belly, grab your lapels, burrow your neck, and then try to hang on for the next five to 10 seconds. Yeah. And you'll get stood up. It's totally valid within that sport. And people have won world championships by using that strategy, but it's going to develop bad habits combatively. And, uh, so there's always, you know, how do you, uh, how do you structure the rules to uh, make it more or less combative? And that takes us back to, you know, this whole, you know, two guys pulling seated guard, yeah. right at right at the beginning of uh, of their match, because it's probably the best thing to do within the rule set, mm. but it's not necessarily the most the best thing to do combatively.
0: Well, I, I did only a little bit of judo. I trained it for a, a few minutes just to to supplement when I was doing BJJ and it really explains why um, there seem there seemed to be a lot of you know um, rolling crucifix armbars from that position. I suppose it sort of uh, alludes to what you're saying about getting into that position um, so uh, introduction of, of bjj do you <clears throat> and I find this happening again so I guess we'll talk about a little bit more about MMA and what that means to martial arts. With the onset of the UFC, I thought it had achieved its goal of really saying, let's look at what is real and what works. Mm -hmm. These days, it seems that, you know, what happened 25 years ago, doesn't matter at all. You have still got all these traditional martial arts schools going. And then in BJJ, we've now splintered off into a number of different versions where you've got, you know, MMA style jiu-jitsu, self-defense style jiu-jitsu, gi jiu-jitsu, and no gi jiu-jitsu, where it just seems to have fragmented the environment anymore. Talk about that in a second, but <clears throat> when this stuff kicked off and you know, going back 30 years, the guys who were doing traditional martial arts, did you find that all of them flocked into BJJ, or ultimately did some say, oh, oh wait, no, not for me. I'm going to stick to, as you said, praying mantis and all this sort of thing.
1: I'll say that jiu-jitsu became more popular more and more karate guys discovered that move twelve of their kata <laughs> was actually a wrist lock, right? And thus they could advertise karate and grappling on their placards. But really, you know, Dan, I'm quoting Dan Santo here. A martial art is three major components: it's the techniques, it's the training methods, and it's the training equipment. Right? The the techniques are a wrist lock, an arm bar. Uh, a shoulder throw, an over under guard pass, oh whatever. That's that's the technique. The training method is training it against resistance. So just because move twelve of some karate kata could symbolize a wrist lock, that's great. That's the technique. But what's the training method? How are you actually training that against resistance? And if you're not training that against resistance, the odds of it working in real life are a hundred times lower. It's not impossible. Mm-hmm. You occasionally, see somebody pull something off that they've never trained against resistance, but statistically, you're playing a numbers game. The odds of it being successful have just plummeted. Mm. And then, you know, uh, the training equipment's important too. Uh, if we trained all the same techniques of jitsu but we did it only on pavement, o- only on hardwood floors, the sport would look different. Mm. I know because I have trained it on pavement and I have trained it on hardwood floors, and it was dumb, right? It, uh, <laughs> it. Uh, it's something that you can do if you really, really have to, but if you did it on a regular basis, you would be injured and crippled in short order and end up degenerating your joints even faster than the sport does. Mm. So uh, I'm very happy to train on mats. The softer, the better at my age. And then I, if I ever have to use in the street, you know what? I'll, I'll just suffer for a little bit, but you'd be so amped in adrenaline that you're not yeah, going to yeah, feel Yeah, of it. course. Uh, is, it'd be a dumb way to train.
0: You're one of the few guys that will have the chance to ask about that because Dan Inosanto comes from Bruce Lee. You know, Tao uh, of Jeet Kune Do in that book really uh, was open to all styles. So I just, I guess, wanted to confirm that when you were training with Dan Inosanto, that, that that those sort of ideals carried over, didn't they? That it was really sort of whatever we can make work for us? Yeah,
1: and he's, the man is really open-minded. Uh, I mean, he's, I don't it would not be unusual in that era for when he went back to, you know, he'd be teaching his own classes at night, but he'd be taking three or four other people's classes during the day, right? right? He'd be going from the Machado school to train and then from the Machado school to do a you know, private with Hickson and then to go train in some new Filipino stick fighting system that he'd never heard of mm. and then go teach his classes at night. So it really was walking the walk. It wasn't just like, Oh, we should be open to training all styles, but guess what? You can learn all styles from me. No, it, it really was um, walking the walk and being demonstrably open-minded. Uh, and um, you know, some people are exposed to his stuff more in the seminar context. And it's, it's quite, not quite, reasonably different from the experience at the academy because at the academy, they're actually sparring a lot of this stuff. Whereas yeah. if you, you're teaching a seminar to 80 people and you now introduce sparring, things can go haywire pretty quick, right? You, you just don't have the, the bandwidth or the span of command, the span of control to make sure that 40 pairs of sparring people aren't going to knock each other's teeth out.
0: Mm. Um, as I said, I I ended up getting into MMA. I, I remember the UFC dropped off for fears years and then Pride. And I always try to go back and, and see the timeline of it. So it, it was Shudo really that came out of Japan, sort of from um, Ultimate Japan, and then after Shuto, I think the UFC hit, then there was a couple of events of Coliseum where I think, which were Hickson's first events before the lead up to the first version of Pride under KRS. Did, do I have that timeline correct? I'm not that familiar with
1: the Japanese timeline of how they got, I mean, I know that the Shooto shoot wrestling thing grew out of something called shoot boxing, and then uh, eventually it morphed into Pride and then Pride essentially was shut down when the, I think the Japanese cable network said, no, nah, this whole thing is just rotten with the Yakuza. Yeah. We're not going to handle it no more. And basically overnight, this giant organization disappeared. Uh, it, it's, it's really interesting to see all the martial artists, you know, Japanese, Brazilian, talking loyalty, 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 loyalty. Yet, when you take a look at what's going on in Japan and Brazil, everybody's splitting from everybody and forming their own rival organizations, right? The the shoot boxing split from the shoot wrestling, and then there were rival organizations there, and then a bunch of guys went over to Pride, and I mean, don't even get me started on Brazilian politics about who's splitting with who and joining leagues with this other team, and they're all traitors, and I mean, it... it uh, why can't we just get all... You know? Why can't we all just get along mm. to... Uh, what King.
0: What do you think about that in terms of loyalty, which is a very traditional martial arts thing, but we're now we're completely on the other side of the scale where, you know, if you read the forms, you've got like guys that go, I don't really care. You know, I, I work in a corporate environment. I pay 150, 200 bucks a month to train. Don't talk to me about loyalty. I'm just here to get a sweat on. I don't want to roll too hard. What do you think about how that's changed and sort of where that, I guess, leaves us with the, you know, 2000 years of values of like respect and honor to your sensei and all these sorts of ideas that um over the last you know 10 years have just kind of been ditched in in favor of you know capitalism i think a lot
1: of shitty stuff has been done in the name of respect and honor of the sensei just how like a lot of shitty stuff has been done in the name of yoga yoga gurus spreading their art and oh guess what um you know uh the hot yoga guy uh Oh my God! I've forgotten his name. This
0: so Is where they turn into like a free love cult and all that?
1: Yeah, yeah. no, Bik- no, not a free love cult. Just a you know free love for the main instructor.
0: Yes, so I want <laughs> You and you
1: and you to be here, stroking <laughs> in my hair as I'm teaching the class. Teaching the class. So, I think, here's what I think about loyalty. I'll be loyal to my instructors by giving credit where credits due. Mm. Right. I, I've, in this conversation, I've given credit to I think four people, and I could go on. You know, I, I'm not currently training with Philip Gelina because he's in Montreal and I'm here. I'm not disloyal because I'm not training with him. I'm not disloyal because I'm not training the main martial arts that he taught me. I'm loyal because I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm giving credit where credit is due and, uh, and passing that, you know, sort of paying that forward or, or acknowledging that, um, i'm not training that much filipino uh martial arts these days which is of course what dan inosanto is known for um uh, but i'm i'm paying homage to the parts that i really take away and the parts that i really use also at the technique level if you show me uh, if i learn a really cool leg lock setup by watching josh barnett Mm. okay um, it's okay for me to teach that. I just have to say, I got this by watching Josh Barnett. It's not like I am the font of all you know wisdom that there ever is and that there ever you has been. You do a really good job of that, be. though.
0: Your, your videos always introduce or say, hey, I saw this one, so uh, yeah. you always give credit where it's due, I find. Yeah. I, I
1: think that's, that's kind of an important um, take on the loyalty thing. I mean, ultimately, a martial arts instructor is somebody who – A jujitsu instructor is somebody who can show you how to break somebody's arm more efficiently and Mm. choke somebody unconscious. They're not an expert. You know, you you shouldn't go to them necessarily for medical advice. Maybe they have a little bit more (laughs) medical knowledge
0: than the average person. Let's take the conversation there because we were talking about it, uh, about the uh, bro science that infects jujitsu and the cult of conspiracy theory where... um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a relatively center, right-leaning person, but okay. I can see a lot of this stuff for for what it is. Um, I mean, I guess we may not be as involved in, in other communities of any other type, but this sort of thing uh, is perpetually involved in our sport. What do you think about it is that it sort of attracts these uh, ideas or personalities? I wish I knew.
1: I used to think that things like jiu-jitsu would act would on average be less prone to magical thinking and conspiracy thinking just because I'm not going to, if you tell me this is the best arm bar set up that there's ever been, I'm not just going to take your word for it. I'm going to go test it. Mm. And so that emphasis on empirical testing, which really the whole art is built around. I thought that this would somehow translate to a more skeptical uh, approach to, you know, flat Earth stuff mm. or, uh, you know, lizard people controlling the earth or uh, COVID was created in a Chinese lab to assassinate president Trump so that, you know, by the Jews, right. Or, or whatever the crazy conspiracy is. I used to think that jujitsu would be more immune to that. Uh, sadly, I think that's, that hypothesis was incorrect. I think there's so much bro science and so much, uh, conspiracy thinking I think those are also different things I think bro science is different from conspiracy thinking bro science is kind of taking uh, complex ideas and something that kind of worked for one guy medically or you know to get jacked I started taking this megaplex 5000 and dude if you take that and you drink a gallon of milk a day you're going to make it to 280 pounds with abs that's kind of more what I look at as bro science but it's it's not a very deep understanding of the the science. It's kind of invoking science without a deep understanding of the the scientific underpinnings of that idea or bro stats, right? Bro statistics, Uh, taking a look at, um, I don't know, serological test data without understanding how that serological test data was gathered, right? So it's it's kind of a surface or superficial appreciation of the science. The conspiracy stuff, man, it's it's really cutting close to home. I have one theory, and that is that uh, conspiracy thinking is more prone in the various industries that are more heavily affected by COVID precautions, right? So yoga studios, obviously heavily affected by COVID, already prone to woo-woo thinking it's not that surprising that they would go over to say like, man, it's just about your connecting your heart chakra to your, your pineal gland and having a healthy immune system. It's self-serving though, right? Because if that's true, then you don't need to shut a yoga studio down. If COVID gets out of control in an area. Similarly, I find musicians who are, whose livelihood is legitimately heavily affected. Of course. Tend to be more prone towards, uh, Calling this a conspiracy, or being COVID minimizers or COVID deniers, um, and same thing for jiu jitsu. I mean, it's undeniable that like this is affected, especially in parts that are heavily hit and areas that have taken heavy precautions, have disproportionately affected jiu jitsu studios compared to say, I don't know, outdoor boot camp, mm. right, uh, uh, or a running clinic, or the kiteboarding community. Or the canoeing community or the snorkeling community, right? Those, yes. So they, the snorkelers have not been as affected by this <laughs> as much as the jiu jitsu guys. So it's not surprising that they, as a community, and especially the teachers, would gravitate more towards the interpretations that would allow business to continue as normal.
0: That's sort of correct. That, that's events, that's but... a
1: theory. I don't have data on that. That extends into um,
0: moon landings and flat Earth and stuff, but uh, I guess well, we're, you I, know I we're, we're not a conspiracy talk show by any means. So,
1: yeah, I I mean that's pretty easy to explain. I think some of the big names we'll call him Eddie. I'll name it Eddie Bravo. Has been pumping conspiracy theories for at least a decade, and Joe Rogan has enabled it. Right? He he mm-hmm. may not believe. I, don't know, I forget. I can't keep track. He doesn't think the Earth is flat. He does think space exists. I think he thinks the moon landing was faked, but he's also had guys like Alex Jones on the show and given them a platform, mm. right? Who the last time that what was it episode nine eleven on the Rogan podcast? Like Alex Jones was ranting about interdimensional aliens coming and smuggling children to the moon as part of the whole gate well, conspiracy.
0: I've never been offended really by any of that stuff. I, I, the the only stuff that really sticks out to me when I hear about that is to um, when they get around to the idea of calling something atrocious, like a school shooting, a conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. I think that that takes it to a, a, a plateau that I'm really not comfortable with when, when you're denying other people's tragedy and mourning. I think that, I think that's something entirely different than saying that the moon doesn't exist or something along those lines.
1: Yeah. I, I think there are definitely some theories have greater and lesser implications for harm. Mm. Uh, I would argue that, you know, you can cure cancer by drinking your own urine, like, and that, that's not so much in the Jiu-Jitsu community, although, you know, the Machida, more of a, uh, <laughs> yeah, <that's
0: but> like... <laughs> a Machida thing,
1: but it's also a yoga thing. Okay. Right? Like, okay, there now we're actually beginning to have the real potential for harm. Mm. And, and if you want to take it, the people who are really pushing the, uh, you know, COVID was created in a lab in China in the Wuhan bio the, and the level 4 biosecurity lab there and released in order to assassinate President Trump, yeah. which is a conspiracy theory that's out there. Well, now we're talking about potentially ending life on Earth, right? Are you really trying to convince uh, the United States to go to, uh, and think that this is an act of war from China? Mm. Well, okay, there's the moon landing is fake. All right, that doesn't really affect too many people. Not any of us are going to be uh, you know, taking a trip to the moon anytime soon. Then there's like, drink urine to cure your own cancer, which could hurt some people. And now we're talking about a theory where, in theory, I mean, you're promoting war between two gigantic nuclear-armed superpowers. Yeah. Right? If enough people, if enough people, oh, how did I, oh, serious. <laughs> as I'm talking about conspiracy theories, my phone starts, you know, Siri activates. Listening my phone, in. Yeah, to let the NSA know. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that that is, you know, I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, like the geopolitical implications here of you know, do we yeah. really want to ramp up tensions between the United States and China right now? And when people who are running for Congress, I think it was a, a wannabe Congresswoman who, who I saw tweet that, like this is, that gets to be really serious. Mm. So it's, you know, maybe the moon landing is a gateway drug, and just gets to uh, kind of...
0: Oh, look, I, there's there's truth and merit in the thought, and, and I'm not talking about the conspiracies themselves, though, but I certainly recognize the way that there's more and more manipulation through mainstream media. And so I can understand how people are just deciding to tune out completely. What they end up getting out of that after the fact, I think, is, is entirely different, but I sympathize with the fact that every Mm -hmm. time I turn on the news and I'm halfway around the world, I'm in Australia. Mm -hmm. Trump is on the television 24 hours a day and there's nothing, nothing but everything that he's possibly done bad. I, from, you know, they may look at this idiot eating with a knife and fork today. And I'm just like, this is not news. So I I can understand how people are, you know, jumping off that. But as I said, where they end up from that, I think is really the problem these days.
1: Yeah. I I mean, Uh, everyone's talking about the social dilemma, right? The, uh, that new Netflix documentary where basically it's pointed out that Facebook makes money. Facebook doesn't make money. If you log on to Facebook and it's like, Hey, everything's groovy today. Mm. And Facebook doesn't make money. Even if they're like, president Trump is a demon from hell. If everybody, if every post on Facebook says president Trump is a demon from hell, they're not making money where they're making money is by having half the people say Trump is a demon from hell. And that's the only thing that the people on the left see. And the other half see Trump is a light. Emperor worker. Trump. <laughs> emperor, yeah. And by having by pandering to both sides and only showing them their half of the debate, that's mm. undeniable. Uh, to some extent the media is like that, but I mean, I don't really consume that much mainstream media. I do uh, subscribe to the the New York Times, right? So, okay, now that's, you know, bias, left-wing BS. Well, most of the time, actually, every, with regards to COVID, because I've got a background in biology, right? So I often go to the original scientific literature on this stuff. When the New York Times has made a statement about COVID and you go track it back through, okay, this journal said this and that journal said that, and like, okay, that's actually a chain of causality here. Whereas on, other mainstream media, and I'll include Fox. Like you, sometimes track that back, and you're at the exact opposite of where you are now. New York Times is obviously biased politically, but in terms of the scientific, and I'm not really uh, able to evaluate that. Like, I don't. I'm not a political mm. scientist. I can't. Like, you know, and I, well, I don't it's, have it's getting harder for people
0: to do that. You know, but people turn to the news to get educated on a subject matter, and when you're hearing three different points of view saying three different things, I. I understand how it's sort of gotten to this it, point.
1: It's, it's interesting when you go to a scientific conference or when you, you've never heard a less unified point of view, right? Like, so yeah. I, I deliver a presentation on, I don't know, the rate at which beavers through chew trees. <laughs> this is my and favorite topic. That,
0: I'm so glad that we approached it. Too. And at,
1: at the end of that presentation, half the audience is going to try and tear me apart and go, well, did you account for this? Did you account for that? or you put four scientists in a room and you get five different opinions. The idea that there's this magic red phone that they, whoever they is, can call and go, okay, you know, scientists all over the world, <laughs> we need you to agree that, I don't know, on whatever they talk, here are the four talking points you must have. It's ridiculous. Like If, if you actually spend any time in the scientific community, I mean, if I have a way of if I have a new theory of dark matter in the universe yes, and I, 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 I think it's, I don't know, floating popcorn kernels. And I put this out there, I'm going to get attacked, of course. But if I can prove that it's actually floating popcorn kernels, my career is set. I get the Nobel peace yeah. prize. I get tenure. I'm famous for life. I've got grad students. Like I, the, it's the also very hard.
0: Um, like when you read, Someone will come out with a new nonfiction book on a theory of something that happened in Pompeii. Oh, here's my new evidence, and it's so hard to say an event that happened thousands of years ago that some guys now written or you know read 15 textbooks and come up with a new theory on it, and that theory now stands. I find that all, an, another thing. I think um, uh, it's probably more of a, a human issue about being able to compartmentalize and understand. But I think um, a lot of it, well, people need to. I think Aristotle to allow said it.
1: something about being able to hold a thought without accepting it or yes. hold a belief without accepting it. Mm. And I think that's how a lot of science works. And, and honestly, when you see the original, like when you read the original scientific papers, they're couched, and you go to a conference or something, it's couched in so many, okay, if our measurements of this beaver chewing you know, are accurate and if our analysis of this is accurate and if this, cont- if this trend is the same, in neighboring uh, watersheds, then we could expect X, Y, Z. So the guys qualified it like three or four times, right? And then the media here is just the final result, the most sensational result and broadcast that because this, this idea of sort of nuance or hedging, like, Hey, if these, uh, I don't know, the gravitational lensing data that we're getting from Alpha Centauri is accurate. And if these, I don't know, gravity wave measurements from LIGO are accurate. And if our math is all right, then this proves that the dark matter is popcorn kernels, right? It,
0: uh... Well, this this is why I think there there is a problem with sciences these days too. And this again is more, you know, treading into that conservative argument. You start getting into concepts of, of climate change, but it's the same thing that, you know, in order to continue their research, they're dependent upon funding. So there, there's already a conflict of interest, I think, a, a lot of the times with this and it begins as I said, you know, if, if you're already working eight to 10 hours a day, you expect just to be able to gather some information. I, I think it becomes a hard ask of people to then say, here's 10 pieces of news. Now go out there and disseminate it again for yourself before you come up with an opinion while they're working, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week.
1: For sure. It doesn't stop people though. Doesn't. It does, and, <laughs> doesn't. Uh, I mean, you see some of the stuff that's being shared and like, the headline is in direct conflict with the article. So you know
0: they didn't read the article. Well, I was even going to say you, you've made the assumption that beavers exist in your paper, which is yeah, exactly. so, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Well, look, let, let's, let's kind of wrap it up and get back to martial arts here. Uh, so do, do you still do stand-up? This is one of the things that I notice with a lot of people as they transition to BJJ. That becomes their one and all because it, it is pretty all-encompassing. And I find a lot of people and other guys are online like... Uh, jujitsu and stuff who post they, they kind of end up giving that up completely to, to become rollers
1: a little bit the answer is a little bit uh i can't do as much as i would like in uh 2015 i had a life-saving kidney transplant so i okay. have one so, functioning kidney it was just a genetic condition called polycystic kidney disease where basically the kidneys went from like half a pound each to about five pounds each okay and grew a whole bunch of cysts so, um, maybe, and maybe that was exacerbated by years of judo, just that getting pounded and mm. years of abdominal impact and sparring, uh, and medicine ball conditioning and stuff like that. Just in me, now, most people probably okay with it.
0: Right.
1: So given that I have one kidney, I've got to take care of it now. Mm. So that unfortunately rules out a lot of the impact training. So that makes it harder to do uh, meaningful, kickboxing, yeah. meaningful stick fighting and just the, di- the amount of power involved in takedowns is uh, is considerable. That's a lot of sort of hydrostatic impact if you get thrown to the ground and do a big impact. And so I, I, <laughs> on, the, on the ground, I'm grappling mm. and, and you know pressure testing on the standing, and I've done a lot of that in the past and I'm trying to do just enough of it to keep it alive. But also, you know, I would really rather not go through the process of a second kidney transplant. So the answer is no. But if I had my druthers, I would be doing at least some of that. I think as a martial artist, it's important to be well-rounded. Mm-hmm. As a martial artist, yeah, you can specialize. You can be a ground specialist. But like I said earlier, a couple times a year, you should put on the bag gloves and let, or let somebody punch you from the, from the top, essentially. If you're on the bottom, anybody can win a fight from the top. So, go on the bottom, try and let them punch you. Mm-hmm. And you should do basic takedowns, right? You should have a single leg, you should have a double leg, you should have an ankle pick, you, know, you should have an arm drag to the back and a couple ways to take the guy down from there. And that's just off the top of my head. Uh, you should know how to, you know, the basics of boxing. You don't mm-hmm. have to be a, you know, a Lomachenko, but you should able to throw a jab, you should be able to throw a cross, you should be able to throw a hook and you should be able to close the distance.
0: Just need to be a Ricardo Arona. Of, sorry? A Ricardo Arona, just a whopping one, two to close the distance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, some, some is better than none. Uh, you should also have a basic understanding of, of weapons. Again, you don't have to be some kind of, you know, Filipino martial art, artist with a stick whipping all around, but you know, you should know how to how to throw a powerful angle one, a powerful angle two, how to crash, um, how to grapple with that stick. And I would even make an argument that if you're a martial artist, you should know the basics of firearms. I don't think I you need to go down the absolute like gun nut route, unless mm. that's really what turns your crank. I think most people go down the gun, run, gun nut route, have the opposite problem, which is that they have nothing else other than that gun. Yeah. Often, including fitness. Mm. Right. So they probably, have they they're. they're, they're
0: I've, I've always said the best martial art is to learn how to sprint.
1: Yes. Mm. And I'll say that the odds of getting attacked, killed by an attacker in Australia and Canada and most parts of the United States are pretty low. Mm. Therefore your odds of you're most likely to be killed by heart attack, stroke and cancer. So I think sprinting is a totally valid form of self-defense, but even long, slow sessions on the elliptical or on the rowing machine are also a form of self-defense because it's mm-hmm. going to cut down greatly on your chances of dying a heart attack and stroke. Right? Mm-hmm. It might delay it by another 10, 15 years. And so, and has a great benefit on your martial arts.
0: I, I want to start wrapping up because I'm sure you're probably getting tired of this chat and want to do other things today. But um, just, just to sort of get to where we are, I mean, do you since it started out there's now a lot of you know for guys that are actively practicing practicing it's less jujitsu and it's more grappling and what i mean by that is that you should be integrating um you know uh, freestyle greco-roman wrestling elements of judo um there's other things that have started to pop out of the woods uh like catch wrestling that, that are now popping in. we're getting this debate do you do you consider it brazilian jujitsu these days or how do you sort of see what we're doing now as an art mm.
1: Well, I mean, there's so much evolution all over the world that I, I still call it BJJ, but honestly, when you take a look at the, uh, a lot of the no-gi tournaments, uh, it, it, it's pretty distinct looking. So I, I think it's too soon to say. Um, I'm, if I look at what I've written recently, I've often used BJJ and jiu-jitsu so that's that's two different terms right yeah. one is leaving out the brazilian part and The other is bjj just because by habit so i don't know um i think it'll be really interesting to see where the sport goes it's, it's kind of a a cambrian explosion of different <laughs> uh of different
0: if the dinosaurs exist if the yeah. big bang exists oh, oh. good lord <laughs> kill me now <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, uh, the fossils were put on earth to uh to test your faith correct um I'm going to get majorly sidetracked here. Uh, yeah. Talking about other, where the sport is. Okay. The, the I think that, that was the, uh, the, the my first encounter with conspiracy really was, or the conspiracy type thinking was arguing with uh, literalist creationists. Creationists. Um, okay. But yeah, I think it's too soon to say, I think we're seeing new formats being invented all the time. Uh, we're, we're, it's a, it's a rapid evolution. You know, the, the there, there is a, a split happening, right? It used to be that the guys who would win ADCC were all the jiu-jitsu guys who trained with a gi. That was definitely the pattern for 10, 15 years. And I think that pattern is beginning to fragment and we are beginning to see specialists, right? That no gi specialists will tend to do better in a nogi in no gi events. That was definitely not the case. And I think the reason for that was that for in 2002 and in 2005 and in 2010 if you wanted to train with the best grapplers you went and trained with the brazilian jiu-jitsu guys who spent most of the time in the gi they were just objectively better because mm. they had that much more corporate experience and time on the mats and you had the, the, the guys who have been black belts for 10 years and were still competing they're gonna be deadly with or without the gi yeah so you would go and train with the Gi, just because that's where the highest level of training partners were. I don't think that's true anymore. I think there are a lot of. I mean, I. Uh, I I'm not a, a fan of Eddie of Eddie Bravo's flat Earth stuff, but it's undeniable that the Tenth Planet guys are pumping out a ton of Nogi guys who are pretty bloody good. Yeah. Right? and that's that's the advantage of specialization. And it's undeniable that the competitors who spend more, almost all their time training no gi, are doing very very well in the no gi tournament so i'm, I'm wondering if it'll split it might well split and you, then 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 it might end up in a situation where kind of like what happened in the early 2000s when the karate guys realized they couldn't compete they couldn't make the argument that we are the most effective system for fighting because the ufc had come along and proved that and they kind of just took their ball and went home like they kind of just split off and like okay we're doing karate and we're going to do it for these reasons. We're going to do it here because it's great tradition. It's great fitness. Um,
0: so sorry. What do you see that schism as? W- what are the branches that, that you're alluding to here? Well, gi star. Gien- okay. With. I think that's already happened. There, There's, yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's still some
1: cross, like a lot of the Brazilians are still competing <laughs> in both and we'll really have to see how they do in the big tournaments. <laughs> but yeah, uh,
0: um, Did you learn, so our, uh, Perosh, my instructor came straight from, uh, he's a black belt of Carlos Machado in in Dallas. So there's that sort of lineage and we still work with a syllabus. That's also another area where guys say, oh, you, you know, we'll show you stuff. It's up to you to learn your stuff. And then you get your, you advance based on how you roll. Do you think a syllabus is important anymore or sort of having a, a, you know, a playbook to work from?
1: Man, that's a really touchy question. I think I mean, in an ideal world, in an ideal world, I work with a student one-on-one. Okay. Fundamentally, you need, uh, there's somewhere between six and eight most common positions in jiu-jitsu, right? Everybody agrees there's a thing called the mount. Everybody agrees there's a thing called closed guard. Everybody agrees there's a thing called side mount. Everybody agrees there's a thing called turtle, the back. Right? Those are, The common positions. And for each position, you need ways to get out of it if you're on the bottom, you need ways to attack if you're on the top, and you need ways to change the position. For example, if you've got somebody in your guard, you need a way to change a position, which means to sweep them. So I don't really care how the person knows, you know, how to how the person controls the back How the person submits from side control, how the person passes the guard, how the person does guard retention, but those are fundamental boxes that need to be checked off. A friend of mine, Robert Nackie, with whom I've done a whole bunch of instructionals with, has an interesting system for giving stripes out, right? There are four stripes on a belt. One stripe is for uh, guard retention. The other stripe is for guard attacks or, or guard passing. Another stripe is for controlling the top position. Another stripe is escaping the bottom position or c- controlling the back. Okay. So, you know, if, if you were really, you're, you come in and you're just a savant at passing the guard, great. You're <clears throat> going to get a stripe, but you're not getting another stripe until you have the basics of taking the back. Mm. You're not going to have another stripe until you get the basics of, you know, guard retention. So I like that general uh, system with the kind of boxes that need to be checked, but what you check them with is up to you. But that's a very individualized system of teaching, right? If you're running a large school, you need to have S mount attack from, uh, sorry, S mount attack to arm bar from top. You need to have, you know, I don't know, 180 degrees spinning arm bar from knee mount. Yes, no check. Um, I'm not sure there is a perfect system. I mean, there's so many people who've gotten good, just rolling, right? There's mm-hmm. some kind of some kinesthetic geniuses can just pick up most of what they need to know just by rolling. I hate those people. <laughs> they exist.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, y- you've got a new book out as well. So, um, and program. So for people that have listened this far, they're going to know who you are and, and hopefully want to buy your products. So let's talk a little bit about the products that you've got in market. And the other thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, with downloading everything is, is there a shelf life to products these days where you're sort of forced to say, uh, you know, everyone sort of has a series of instructionals that they continue to push out to make sure that they're relevant and and current and I assume have something to market. Yeah.
1: I don't think there's necessarily a shelf life. I mean, there's a, there's styles and trends in production quality and in amount of information shown. A lot of those techniques that I learned in the old, 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 old Panther production videos, they're still good techniques. Now, some of the details have evolved for sure. Like a leg lock from 1995 is not the same as a leg lock from now. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But you know, the, the real problem with those videotapes back then is they would show a technique, then they'd show it from the other angle, then they'd show it from the other angle, and show showed from the other angle. And then showed slow motion from angle one, slow motion from angle two. So it was the teaching method, it was the pedagogy that really sucked. Mm-hmm. So the technique itself was still good. It was just how it was taught. You know, how many details that were in, how quickly it's taught, how the instruction is organized. That that sucked. The techniques, you know, still good. Like uh, it worked then. It would work now, more or less. Um, in terms of a shelf life, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, the market in the last few years has really gotten very, very swamped on the digital side. And the book side of it has just completely died out. Right? Victory Belt books, that used to produce, half those books on this shelf here are Victory Belt martial arts books. There's a reason that they're mostly doing keto diet books now. They mm-hmm. haven't done a martial arts book in forever because they don't make any money.
0: Well, it's hard to picture a move versus seeing it drawn out these days, especially when you can access it for free instantaneously. Yeah. I think there are advantages
1: to books. Number one, I like reading them. Number two, I like owning them. Number three, if I see a move in video, I don't know, say it's a YouTube video. Say it's a YouTube video of how to do a triangle choke from the half guard. And I watch it, now I understand it, and now I want to go drill it it would take me another eight minutes to watch that video again Mm -hmm. or if it's in in 13 pictures in a book i can review it much quicker so i like the video paired with the book because it kind of it's like a more like a checklist a visual checklist of like here are the eight steps you got to do oh okay um so that's i i like i like the combination i think there still is a use for books but trying to convince people that um books have a use is kind of a losing argument now Um, I mean, I, I, I don't ever want to move homes again. Just the the, pound, the, the the number of bloody books I would need to move and the number of bookshelves I'd need to move is, is sick. It makes, me, it makes me feel slightly sick to my stomach. Well, that, all that being said, I did just publish a book with Brandon Mullins. It's called Nonstop Jiu Jitsu. I've been calling it the uh, BJJ book of the year, which is easy to say because I don't think there have been any other technique books published this year. So, um, and I, it, it took six years to put that together, which is kind of, you know, I can shoot if I know if I'm working with somebody who knows what they're doing and they've got a game plan, you can shoot an instructional pretty quick, but that, that was a six year journey to get the editing in that book. Correct. And it, um, it's, it, it's a, it's a work of art, I think. And it's a, it's a work of love because, uh, you're not doing that to get rich. But anyhow if it it's doing really well on Amazon check it out nonstop jujitsu. It was supposed to be available in Australia and then it turns out that Am- uh, Amazon in Australia doesn't do print on demand. So I apologize. I hope Amazon gets its stuff together down under soon.
0: What uh what motivates you to do that? I think for for people that know you already have an existing full-time job. So Uh, is, is this more of a business venture? Is it just a love and a hobby for you to continue to do this after all these years?
1: It's, it's both. It's both. I mean, it, um, there's a saying I'm a firefighter. So there's a saying that firefighters are either workaholics, alcoholics, or sportaholics. And I, uh, fit into the workaholic sportaholic end of things. Um, so if I'm going to be doing stuff, I might as well be doing stuff that I love, right? I actually really enjoy the process. There were, times in that six years of writing that book or working on that book and doing the layout and trying to learn Adobe InDesign, which is a book layout program. It's completely different from any other program I've ever used, uh, where I wanted to take my computer and smash it into small pieces. But now that it's out, I'm super proud of it, right? So it's kind of like <laughs> a, a, a project that finally, finally, finally got off my shelf and it feels uh, off my plate and it feels really good um i really enjoy running into people who found something like the uh the roadmap to bjj uh ebook which i put out which is free um grapplearts.com book useful when they were starting jiu-jitsu kind of like just a basic overview of the whole art and basic positions and the basic transitions and you know i I, probably i get a couple emails a day from people saying you know that was super helpful and it made help make me helped me make sense in my 1st jujitsu class um and then if the money that i make doing that can fund other interesting projects and sometimes they make money sometimes they lose money and on on a, the whole it, it's generally positive um i mean man that's that's if you're doing what you love that's a that's a good thing it's a very very good thing given how many people hate their jobs i'm very very lucky to love both of mine which is it's doing firefighting, like it's a great combination.
0: Excellent, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. I think we've been going for about 90 minutes or thereabouts, so um, look, thanks very much for speaking with us, it's, uh, okay. it's it's always cool to be able to speak to people remotely and, and hopefully we get through this thing and uh maybe we can chat again see yeah or or even train in person wouldn't that be cool i get i get back home once every year year and a half i was there last time i think it was december what year we in 2018 is the last time i was back so um but we were in van so maybe
1: well we'll we'll see when the when the this vaccine can't come soon enough
0: so awesome all right thanks so much jesse Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Romulus IT, offering fast, affordable remote support for common computer problems, including troubleshooting, health checks, virus removal, and software support. Visit RomulusIT.com to get your computer back on track.